0: By helping other people grow can become life's greatest joy. Our offices are on the top floor of a medical building, and when I sit at my window between appointments with patients, I often ponder the healing of persons in general and the personalities of those in the helping professions in particular. Many of the people with whom I work are themselves doctors, teachers, and social workers who feel beleaguered and weighted down by their tasks. There are so many needed people, they say with so many problems, and for every person they get patched up. There are dozens of others who are falling apart. When there are storms out on the Pacific, an occasional seagull, driven inland by the weather, will swing past my window, gracefully riding the currents. My patients, also, have fled from storms. Their idealism has been battered, and now they are not certain that they can genuinely help anyone. As one clergyman said sadly, when I went into the ministry, I thought I was going to save the world and rescue all these people. But that was a long time ago. Now, I'm much more pessimistic about anyone making that much difference, and my goals are very simple. All I want to do is survive. According to the current jargon, these persons are suffering from burnout. They have lost their faith in the human race. Their former hope of helping people and relieving suffering has been replaced by pessimism, and they are not even sure that they would believe in God any longer. And despair hangs in my office after a few such conversations. My mind often goes for replenishment, the war time in Sweden, and the story of a Baptist, I, hand whose name was Johan Eriksson. Though Johan and I never met, I feel that I know him well, for his daughter, Danny Svensson, was our office manager for many years. In 1939, trainloads of Jewish children were piling into Sweden, and the boys and girls, some of them only three and four years old, would file off the trains with no belongings, except for the large tags around their necks designating their home city, their name, and their age. They were thin and pale. With large, sunken brown eyes. From their melancholy graze, it was evident that they had already seen and experienced things far beyond their years, atrocities that most people would never have to see in a lifetime. The Swedish families were taking in children for the duration of the war, but few were deluded into thinking that it would be a short time. One of the Swedes who opened his door was Johan Eriksson. He had known deprivation himself. At twenty-eight, he had been left a widower with four children. By now, he was middle-aged and most of the children were gone. But when he learned that a frightened nine-year-old named Rolf needed a home, he responded as if he were still a young man. And so a little Jewish boy began to adjust to life in a strict Swedish-Baptist home. At first, when there was a knock on the door or loud voices outside, the boy with the deep-set eyes would dive into a closet and cover his head. he was surrounded with warmth and love in the Ericsson house, and he began to gain weight, to lose the faraway gaze, and eventually he began to laugh again. When an invasion by the Nazis seemed imminent, men at the machine shop said to Johan, when Hitler comes, you will be in trouble with that Jew boy in your house. They'll come and take him away. The normally gentle Swede would reply with clenched jaw, ''They'll never take him so long as I am alive.'' And curiously, Johan was almost equally defensive of Rolf before his fellow Baptists. When members of the church assumed that he would try to convert the boy, Johan's jaw would clench again. The Swedish government had promised the refugee organization that the children's religion would be kept intact, and although Johan took little Rolf to church with his family, he went to considerable lengths to see that the boy learned the Jewish tradition, and that, when the proper age came, he was prepared for and celebrated his bar mitzvah. When the war ended, Johann wanted to return to Rolf's parents, a son who had been raised as closely as possible to the way they would have wanted. But when the war did end, the family was never reunited, of course. Rolf's parents perished somewhere in Europe along with the millions of others who were killed during those apocalyptic years. Letters from his parents had become more and more sporadic, and then one day, an envelope arrived without a postmark. Inside was a hastily scribbled note saying that Rolf would not hear from them again and that he should never forget what this Swedish family had done for him. And Rolf did not forget. He grew up and went away to Stockholm where he began to succeed in business. But the trauma and the wrenching of those early years perhaps took a belated talk. For one day, Rolf's mind snapped. Relatives told Johan Eriksson that he had done enough and the authorities wanted permission to keep the young man in a mental institution, for he was thought to be dangerous. But Johan would have none of it. He belongs here, he said simply. This is his home. And so Rolf returned to the little city of Amel, and the quiet, solid Swede took him in again. For a year, Johan nursed him until his mind returned to stability and peacefulness. Rolf's life was relatively untroubled after that. He married, reared children, established his own company, and became very wealthy. But he never forgot the man who had given him such unconditional love when he was a boy. Nothing was ever too good for Johan, and as the old man became more infirm, an even stronger bond seemed to glue them together. If Johan was sick or needed him, Rolf thought nothing of taking the train across Sweden to spend what was left of the weekend with a man who had become like a father. And when Johan was on his deathbed, all the children would hurry home, but everyone knew who would arrive first, Rolf. My mind often returns to the story of Johan and Rolf and I feel the doubt and despair of my fellow therapists. The reason is this, if Johan Erickson had accomplished no other noteworthy thing in his long life, it surely would have been worth living to have been there to shelter one such child. When we get discouraged in our work with people, it is important to draw back and remind ourselves that there is no more noble occupation in the world than to assist another human being to help someone else succeed.